0: Welcome to News of the Times and our new limited series, Forgotten Fridays, which has been created by our wonderful summer intern, Jason. In this series, we look at a snapshot of times from newspaper articles and publications from long ago. The Time, 1849-1851 to 1851. The Headlines the transportation of British convicts to Western Australia begins. Robert Pate physically assaults Queen Victoria with his cane in Piccadilly, London. A telegraph cable is laid between the English Channel running from Dover to Cap Greenay in France. Harriet Tubman becomes an official conductor of the Underground Railroad, Alan Pinkerton forms the Northwestern Police Agency, later known as the Pinkerton National Detective Agency in the United States. The city of Manchester, England, reaches 400,000 inhabitants. Mayor Lehman arrives from Germany to join his siblings in Lehman Brothers' dry goods business. A cholera pandemic claims 52,000 lives in England and Wales between 1848 and 1850. Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield, is completed in book form. Our headline story. An excerpt from the Blackburn Standard of July 1850. The Conviction of Pate. Robert Pate, who while the Queen in the full security of conscious innocence was passing calmly and happily amid all classes of her subjects alike, chose the moment of entire confidence to make a cruel and cowardly assault upon her, has been convicted of the atrocity and righteously sentenced to seven years' transportation, the limit of punishment which is allowed by the act under which he is tried. There is not a man, woman, or child of intelligence throughout the kingdom that will not from the bottom of his heart applaud so just a judgment. It will be seen that the old defence was once more set up in this case, and strong efforts made to prove the prisoner not a master of his actions. Witnesses were called who gave minute descriptions of how he made unusual movements as he was led along the streets, how he had had his hair cut short, and then observed that his head had been shaved. He had left his regiment without leave, was in the habit of swinging his arms, had been seen to walk as if for a wager, to shout and sing in his path, to go out in a cab, precisely— at quarter past three in the afternoon to purchase a book of nursery rhymes and read them through. To walk through certain furze bushes was supposed to be a person with a very small mental power, and without object or ambition, and a variety of other equally important illustrations, that a respectable man, with nothing to do, may be as deficient of intellectual brightness and as much given to perform stupid and unjustifiable tricks as anyone else. Upon this evidence, and this common sense summing up of the jury, fortunately for society in general, found the prisoner guilty, and he received the richly merited sentence of transportation. From St. James's Chronicle, August 1849 The sad story of Rebecca Smith, who murdered eight of her children with rat poison. The execution of Rebecca Smith for murdering her infant child took place on Wednesday in front of the new prison Devizes. The Devizes Gazette says it is impossible to give anything like a correct calculation of the number of persons present to witness the scene they were countless. From nine until eleven o'clock, people poured into the town in shoals, on foot, in wagons, in boats, and by the latter hour, the prison yard, the banks of the canal, every tree, hedge, and field that could command a view of the drop, appeared crammed. Still, the roads were lined with persons thronging to the spot. People were there from every part of the country, old and young and infants, but they were chiefly of the laboring classes, and there were thousands more women than of men. From the period the miserable woman entered the prison to the moment of her execution, her conduct was most becoming. Mild and contented in her manner and deportment, it might be thought that she was totally incapable of the unnatural crime of which she was convicted. She at once unhesitatingly confessed her crime and acknowledged the justice of the punishment that awaited her, and frequently expressed a hope that others would take a warning by her fate. At the same time, she was extremely ignorant and betrayed a want of any deep feeling. She could read but imperfectly, and what she did read was scarcely able to understand. On Tuesday her husband and daughter, accompanied by her brother and sister, and some other members of her family, were admitted for the last time to see her. There was such a total absence of feeling on the part of her husband as to induce some remarks on his conduct. The sister was deeply affected, as was her brother. As the time approached for her execution, she appeared to feel more deeply her dreadful situation, and she passed rather a restless night, but she afterwards recovered her wanted calmness and ate a moderate breakfast in the morning. Shortly before twelve, the tolling of the prison bell announced that she had but a few minutes more to live and she was ushered from her cell, accompanied by the proper authorities. She was at once conducted to the gallows, the chaplain reading portions of the burial service as the procession proceeded. During this time she did not utter a word, nor did a sigh escape her, but her countenance appeared quite composed and her step firm. Arrived on the drop, the rope was in a moment round her neck, she clasped and raised her hands together as if in fervent prayer, and after a single struggle, she was dead. She was about 44 years of age, and had been married 18 years, and had 11 children. The eldest, only a daughter, is now alive. The second boy died of diarrhoea at the age of 14 weeks. All the rest with the exception of the last but one, the unhappy woman acknowledged that she had poisoned a day or two after their birth. She was extremely ill herself when this child was born, and it was in consequence taken to a neighbor, and it died a fortnight afterwards. But she never even saw it after it was taken from her. Seven of her children she destroyed by administrating to them a poison she called blue, used for destroying rats and mice, and which she said she took from the ricks where it had been placed for that purpose. The last child she poisoned with arsenic, and in each case she put the poison in the child's mouth with her finger. She implicated no other person in the crime. She and she alone did it, and no one else knew anything about it from the first week of her marriage, down to the last which she lived with her husband. He had been given to drunkenness, and it was that, she said, drove her to her crimes. He scarcely ever brought home a shilling of his wages, and she herself toiled hard in the field during the day, and at night she came home and washed and did all the household work. With nothing then to maintain the family but what she earned, which was four shillings a week, and that only when she could procure work in the fields, the fear that the children would come to want operated so powerfully upon her that she destroyed them in the way stated. Her father and mother lived in Bratton, and attended the Baptist chapel at that place, her mother being a member. They were much opposed to the marriage, and knowing the husband's habit of drunkenness, they frequently endeavoured to persuade her to leave him and come again to their home. As was stated last week, on the death of her father, she came into the possession of one hundred pounds, and about this time she and her husband went to live at Westbury, and rented ten acres of land. But the money was soon dissipated there is no doubt that the woman underwent many severe privations. Advertisement from the Illustrated London News, the 21st of June, 1851. Brides' cakes. Messrs Purcell and Cornhill wished to call attention to their bride cakes as being superior to any others both in quality and ornament. An elegant assortment ready for inspection. Wedding breakfasts ball suppers, and dinners provided in the most fashionable style, including wines and hire of plate, china, and cutlery. Bills of fare sent for any number required. From the Scotsman, March 1849. The daring theft Caution to shopkeepers. On Saturday evening a theft of a most daring character, but which has now become rather frequent, was perpetrated in the premises of Mr. Patterson, a watchmaker of Lawnmarket. It appears that a man of respectable appearance entered the shop and asked to be shown some silver watches, when two were laid upon the counter by Mr. Patterson. The fellow, after a brief inspection of them, inquired for a watch with a lever movement. Mr. Patterson turned round to a case which contained the description required and when then the thief snatched up the watches which had been shown him, ran down the stairs and made his escape into the street. Mr. Patterson followed in pursuit for a short distance, but no trace of the thief was to be found, and all the efforts of the police for his discovery have hitherto proved unsuccessful. Advertisement From the South Eastern Gazette, the 1st of January, 1850. Wanted a respectable, trustworthy woman, healthy and active, about forty, as good, plain cook, with dairy and baking, and to assist in the household work and superintend generally. Strict cleanliness and early rising indispensable, with an exceptional character. Also, a man servant as groom and gardener. Who understands cows, pigs, milking, brewing, etc. A sober, quiet, civil, steady, working, middle aged man with good character who can bear confinement and live in the house. Address postpaid with full particulars under cover to ABC Care, Mr. Everard. From the Clare Journal and Ennis Advertiser, the 26th of April, 1849. The execution of Sarah Harriet Thomas, age 18, in Bristol, Friday morning. The wretched criminal Sarah Harriet Thomas, who was convicted at the last county of Gloucester Assizes for the murder of her mistress, Miss Jeffreys by bludgeoning her with a large stone while she slept at Bristol underwent the extreme penalty of the law this day in front of the new jail. There was an immense concourse of persons to witness the execution, the natural horrors of which were greatly increased by the fact that the wretched culprit refused to walk to the drop, and had to be dragged forcibly from her cell, and carried to the platform all the time, giving vent to the most heart-rending screams, On being brought under the fatal beam, she exclaimed, Lord, have mercy upon me. I hope that my mother and none of them are here. Calcraft, the executioner, then adjusted the rope, and in two minutes she was launched into eternity. A confession was made by her to the governor of the jail in the presence of one of the female officers. She said she was driven to it by the cruel treatment of her mistress. A positive aside. From the Morning Post, the 1st of January, 1849. Charity. A gentleman connected with the Union Club presented the magistrate with the sum of ten pounds for the relief of the poor. From the Morning Post, the 1st of January, 1849, in Marylebone. An invocation. On Saturday... Matilda Cronin, an Irish girl, was charged by a Mr. George Marsh, a resident of Number 14 Dudley Street, Paddington, under the following circumstances. Mr. Marsh stated that he was asleep in his bed when he was aroused from the arms of Morpheus by a serenade, the burden of which was something in the following style. Come down, come down, you scurvy George Marsh and I'll tell you something that will astonish your weak nerves and no mistake. He got out of bed, opened the door, and there, to his astonishment, beheld the lovely Matilda. She bestowed upon his sinister cheek a blow that gave him a singing in his ear ever since. Maria bolted, he pursued. She doubled and got to his domicile before him. Upon his arrival there, he found her pursuing the active occupation of smashing his windows. He gave her into custody for doing so. On being cross-questioned, he admitted that he and Miss Cronin had lived upon the most affectionate terms, but he said that was a long time ago. The defendant was ordered to pay for all the damages she had done. Advertisement. From the morning Advertiser, of the 1st of January, 1850, wanted a respectable young woman aged 20 years of age who can take the management of a small private house for a single man. She must be kind, good-tempered, and obliging. A good character will be required. Apply at the Earl Grey, Arthur Street, Trevor Square, Brompton, between the hours of three and five. From the Morning Post, the 1st of January, 1849. All's well that ends well. Miss Mary Bigg preferred a charge against Mr. George Arbuthnot for having wilfully and maliciously much injured her person by inserting a quantity of holly between her sheets on the night of the 26th. Instance. Mr. George Arbuthnot preferred a counter-charge against Miss Bigg's for having by conduct which was anything but ladylike on her part destroyed a very nice French velvet hat of the value of fourteen shillings. It appeared there was a large party of counter-jumpers and bustle-makers enjoying themselves on boxing night in Lissom Grove. Miss Biggs observed Mr. Arbuthnot fumbling about her bed. The soiree was held in the bedroom and, suspecting he had some sinister motive, determined to be even with him. She cut off a large slice of pudding and safely deposited it in the crown of Mr. Arbuthnot's tile. The party broke up and went to their respective homes. Between the fat of Mr. Arbuthnot's head and the suet of the pudding, his hat was quite destroyed, and he sought reparation. Miss Biggs said that on getting into her bed it turned out to be one of thorns instead of roses, and that she was considerably lacerated by the insidious deposit Mr. Arbuthnot had placed therein. She would show the marks to the magistrate if he wished. The worthy magistrate declined. Mr. Arbuthnot, on being sworn, was obliged to admit that he had paid but Five shillings and threepence for his hat when new. The worthy magistrate recommended a reconciliation, which, after sundry and diverse simperings and sly looks, was acceded to by the parties. You have been listening to the news of the Times, 1849 through 1851, and I'm Robin Coles. We would like to thank our tremendous supportive subscribers. Thank you. Your comments, suggestions and interaction is greatly appreciated. Thank you again. If you haven't subscribed, we would be very grateful if you did. We need a minimum of 1,000 subscribers to keep this channel alive. Please subscribe, tell your friends and share on social media. We would greatly appreciate it. We upload six days a week. Fridays are a new limited series called Forgotten Fridays, where we explore a snapshot from newspaper articles, advertisements and publications of a time from long ago. Saturdays are Serial Killer Saturdays, where we do an in-depth look at a serial killer from our extensive database. The time span of these ranges from as early as the mid-16th century to the 21st century and encompasses men, women, children and couples who kill. Sundays are eccentrics as we do an in-depth look at some of the quirky, unusual, notable and bizarre characters from Great Britain, which offers up a rich supply to choose from. Mondays are murderous, where we investigate in depth a historical murder. Tuesdays are twisted and usually involve a collection of stories based around a theme, such as stories of matricide or when employers go bad. Wednesdays are wicked in this new series that will explore outrageous organisations bloody locations and shocking events with a bit of murder and mayhem sprinkled in. From all of us at News of the Times, thank you again for watching or listening. This has been News of the Times and I am Robin Coles.